0: Welcome to the long run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Jeff Jonas. Jeff is the CEO of Cambridge, Massachusetts based Sage Therapeutics. The company made big news, front page of the New York Times, a month ago. That's when it won FDA clearance to sell the first drug ever for postpartum depression. It's a big story for a number of reasons. Postpartum depression hits an estimated 10% of new moms every year in the US, about 400,000 a year. The current crop of selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors for depression, SSRIs, generally don't work very well or nearly fast enough in what can be an urgent mental health problem. Crucially, the SAGE drug has a new mechanism of action, GABA receptor modulation. It's not a reformulated old drug or recycled incremental innovation. Not only is it new, this drug works. Brixanilone, marketed as Zolreso, works for about two-thirds of women with severe postpartum depression, who get it via infusion in the hospital after birth. The price? $34,000 for a course of therapy. Sage now has given itself the task of cutting through the cultural taboos and stigma around postpartum depression. It's a tall order. The biology is complicated. There's a lot still to learn. Disentangling it from environmental factors and quantitative measurement of progress is all these are all hard things. As with all psychiatric conditions, postpartum depression is also traditionally underreported and under-treated. This is supposed to be the happiest time in life when a newborn arrives, right? Sage will succeed or fail as a commercial business based on its ability to roll the rock uphill and encourage doctors and new moms to turn this new molecule into a source of help for getting through a difficult time. Jonas, a psychiatrist by training who's been around the block, knows the challenges in developing mental health drugs. In this conversation, he does a nice job of describing the landscape and a few of the common frustrations. The listeners of this show know that I invite people on who are doing important work and who have interesting personal stories. I take pride in letting them do the talking. I have a pretty long fuse, and I think I'm pretty good at controlling my temper. But this is one case where I let some steam out of my particular tea kettle. As a journalist, I can point to many cases where I've called out bad behavior on the part of industry. The industry is addicted to price increases, and it pains me to see so many companies heading straight to that proverbial iceberg in the North Atlantic. But here, with Sage, the industry's knee-jerk critics are barking up the wrong tree, much like they did against Gilead's Hepatitis C cure. Some of these people, in my view, have gone off the deep end into therapeutic nihilism. Their cynicism is so bottomless, they can't even see an important new medicine when it hits them in the face. And when the most cynical voices are able to drown out reason, it poses a threat to our society's willingness to support the basic research that underpins the whole biomedical enterprise. Okay, had to get that off the chest. And now, on a more calm and collected note, I want to mention a couple events to mark on your calendars. As many of you know, I'm leading the Kilimanjaro climb to fight cancer, a million dollar campaign to support basic research at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, an immunotherapy leader. Part of the campaign includes special events with industry leaders. One is being organized by Eugenie Scarlett, an associate at Atlas Venture, at MassBio's conference room on May 8th. J.F. Formella of Atlas, Christoph Lengauer of Third Rock, Nancy Simonian of Ciros Pharmaceuticals, and Keith Flaherty of MGH are a few of the standout investors, entrepreneurs, and scientists who you can expect to meet there. To find the registration link and sign up, go to TimmermanReport.com and click on Events. And while you're rummaging around on the Timmerman Report events page, West Coasters should check out the Seattle Cancer Summit I'm organizing for the Climb to Fight Cancer campaign. Steve Har of SANA Biotechnology, formerly of Juno, Chad Robbins of Adaptive Biotechnologies, Charlotte Hubbard of Gates Foundation Venture Capital, Tom Daniel of Arch Venture Partners, and Raquel Bracken of Venrock are just a few of the stars coming out for this special event in the heart of Seattle Biotech. This event is expected to sell out in advance. Snooze until the last minute on tickets, and I think you will lose. Again, go to TimmermanReport.com and click on Events. Now, Please join me and Jeff Jonas on The Long Run. So today I'm at Sage Therapeutics in Cambridge, Massachusetts with Jeff Jonas, CEO of this company, developing new treatments for depression. Thanks very much for joining me, Jeff. Thanks for having me today. We will talk some more about your background in a second, uh, how you got to this point at Sage. But for the listeners who are not familiar, this I characterize in my newsletter as a real triumph, scientifically. Because if you think about the mental health space, there has been pretty very little. I I write about innovation for a living, and I have not had occasion to write about a whole lot of things in this area. We've had the SSRIs, the Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitors, from 30 years ago for depression. They've been around forever. They're now generic. People know them. They're part of pop culture. Uh, But you guys are different and interesting in large part. This is a big story, I think, because you're working via a different mechanism, GABA receptor modulation and also NMDA receptor modulation. These are two new areas that actually show some promise. So maybe you can just start by telling me a little bit about the drug brexanolone and why you guys think it's important. Well, again, thanks for having me. to start,
1: it's good to put this in context because, as you say, there really have been no new mechanisms for two decades. And, and I worked on those. I worked on when I started my career in the industry. I worked on Luvox and Xanax, which tells you a little bit how old I am. And um, and since then, everything is focused on one particular mechanism, pretty fairly much mo- the monoamine system, whether it's a serotonergic or a non-specific or specific uh, or SNRI. And, and and it's been a, a wasteland of innovation. So when we started SAGE, one of the things we determined was, let's not reinvent the broken wheel, right? It's like, why go back and do what everyone else has done? And so we purposely looked at new mechanisms and new approaches to drug development. And I think those two went hand in hand for SAGE. We had this initial drug, brexanolone, and that's a drug that that upregulates GABA tone, and GABA is like the brake pedal of the brain. I know you know this, but for listeners who may not, it calms down brain circuitry. And and that effect is probably more profound than people had anticipated. So when we started the company, we were thinking about what can you do with this mechanism? What happens when you calm down brain activity? We know that benzodiazepines, which are not our drugs, can make people sleepy, and they're good anti-seizure meds we didn't know what our drugs would do because they have a more profound impact on brain activity. So when we started, we determined that eat, we had a drug that was active in, hum, in humans, and we said, let's look at human data. So that was our first sort of different approach. We didn't kill 100 rats, you know, drug a lot of non-human primates. We said, we have a safe drug. Now we have something we can test in humans. And where does, the, where does that lead us? And so we, of course, went into seizure, which was super refractory status epilepticus in that trial. Uh, did not meet at some points but we also then said what else could we do and then we thought about this not from a molecular standpoint which is still what drug developers often do they don't instead of relying on observational biology we said let's look at the biology of diseases and we said where can you find an acute change in gabatone and it turned out one of the diseases where there was some evidence for that was postpartum depression and another was where do you have hardwiring that you have a chronic disorder and that turned out to, for us, Parkinson's an essential tremor. And without boring you, all those probes were very were robustly positive. I can tell you when we started, you know, people were, you remember, you've been with us, you followed us, I know, people were very skeptical, right? No one thought this could work. And, but it turned out that the clinical data in humans, and that was our approach get clinical data, do methodology studies, and then design trials. And it turned out, you know, this is a profoundly active mechanism.
0: And the whole history of mental health—I mean, it's littered with failures. The, even the the SSRIs, which we now take for granted, part of the standard toolbox. I mean, there's lots. There's a high placebo effect. Uh, the mechanisms are always hard to really tease apart. Um, it's uh, lots and lots of failures in clinical trials before they finally got you know enough oh. of a hit to submit for FDA approvals. I mean, people, I think, forget that. Uh,
1: yeah. People forget how difficult these trials are and have been. And there I think there are lots of reasons for this. One, of course, is that depression is hard to diagnose. Mm-hmm. And the other is depression can cycle. And so some people will get better just from a secular pathway. They, as time goes on, they get better. And the third, and I think is probably the biggest issue, is that the drugs that we test are not all that effective. They're good, but they're not great. And we all see that. And, and that leads into the whole issue that we face in trying to innovate in this space, which is how do we change the way physicians think about depression and if you think about how people are treated today with depression it's become part of their identity they're treated chronically no one thinks you know, drug holidays are few and far between and people treated us now it's part of their life and we think you know i think that's a fu- that's a function both of the disease but as well as of the kinds of medicine that have been used to treat because diseases are chronic when the treatments don't work well
0: well We'll get to that later. I do agree that depression is kind of part of the human condition. They've been writing about it in great literature forever. Uh, You know, sometimes you go through a long, dark winter and you're feeling cabin fever or whatever it's called, (coughs) and you come out in the spring and feel a little bit better. Life events can change, uh, so you don't necessarily need to look entirely at drugs as the one and only solution all the time, forever. Well, well that actually, so let, let's talk. Can I talk about that? For briefly. You, like, I'll let yep. you guide me. Go,
1: go for it. Well, there are a few things. One is most symptoms in, you, in you, all illnesses are, are manifestations. All, all organs have a limited repertoire of responses, right? That's pathology. So people often treat the brain differently than, say, the liver. So we all have SGLT. Sometimes it's elevated, but everyone has an SGLT. We all have moods. But the idea that you know depression is simply an extension of a normal mood is i think the beginning and one of the major issues that plague psychiatry today is the idea that we all get moody therefore depression is just sort of a worse mood so and that's just not true there are pathological brain states that you can correct and they have to be for patients to get better and treated like you know like medical patients not lifestyle patients you have to understand that there are pathological mood states that are probably
0: biologically based so you're, you can measure this at a molecular level, just uh-huh. like the, some of these other things that you're talking about, like liver, can you? Know, well, shrinkage. no, of course you can. And that's been, right.
1: the, that's been the problem with psychiatry from right. day one, which is, you know, so I was on the DSM-3R committee and I was on the personality committee. And the reality is when you start thinking about psychiatric nosology, which is what you're really talking about, psychiatry is unique in medicine. There are no lab tests. Yeah. There are no imaging tests that are really reliable. There are no physical tests. It is it is purely a inferential symptom-based diagnostic grouping and which clinical is,
0: questionnaires exactly might vary if you take it in the morning or the afternoon or a bad day versus a better day exactly
1: and and so now when you think about this how do you define a disease right and that that's is a this is a fundamental issue with all psychiatry how do you define a disease well there are symptoms but the problem is as we've just discussed symptoms are non-specific right. so you can be depressed i can be depressed but, it made, but that's not enough to be have depression. Just like if I cough, that's not a lot enough for the diagnosis of pneumonia. So symptoms in psychiatry are nonspecific. Then you look at family history. That's better. You know, first-degree relatives, what the probands look like. That's a better that's – a, that's a good uh, diagnostic. Then you look at outcome, you know, course of the disease. And, uh, and Goodwin and Gusey, who are famous psychiatrists who were nosologists, made this very important point. If a caterpillar always turns into a butterfly – it's the same organism, even though they look very different at different stages of their life. So that's why with depression, some people manifest with anxiety. Some people ma- manifest with depression. But it's probably the same disease. We don't have genetic testing. And the last is pharmacologic response. And that's probably the only other provocative diagnostic that we have in psychiatry today. And if you look at that kind of approach, you see that depression, generalized anxiety disorder, panic, and probably all clusters one type of disease. But that has been a challenge from day one. Because most of our clinical scales don't often take it the time. They, it's historical. You don't follow people over time. And if someone says, I'm depressed, I've been depressed for three weeks, I can't sleep, I can't eat, bingo. You're in the trial.
0: Okay, okay. This is a lot of stuff that we can get into later. But for those All unfamiliar, right? again, uh, what you got here with Brixanilone, Zolresso is the brand name now, um, you have passed, I believe, five clinical trials in a row, five for five. Five for five. Um, all statistically significant, but more important than that, uh, there's there's a good effect size here. There's uh, the separation of the curves is early right. and and, and and significant. There's there's a magnitude of benefit, something like five points on the Hamilton D score above the placebo. So with all clinical trials in depression, you have a placebo effect. People get a yeah. placebo and they say they feel better, right? right? But um, that doesn't explain the difference between your drug and that. Uh, can you just walk me through just very, very quickly on the Hamilton D score um, and, and the magnitude that you saw consistently?
1: I think the easiest way to think about it is, is the number of patients who respond or remit is about two-thirds of those patients. Mm-hmm. And it's very profound. And as we, you know, in, and I think as you rightly point out, the, the robustness of the effect is, is even more pronounced given the fact that we had a standard, placebo response and I won't that's a whole separate podcast about all the maneuvers people try to get rid of placebo response which is probably uh, futile Um, so as we did the studies what we saw we had three studies with the intravenous and then two with the oral molecules sage two and seven all of which have similar mechanisms in the brain and what's been the most striking has been the consistency of the finding in five studies in a row which I think is is not been done ever in depression where we have the same effect early on and where it's persisting out to 30 to 45 days. so it, it, And we think that reflects the nature, the fundamental difference in this GABA mechanism, which it basically attenuates abnormal neural circuitry. And it's almost like a brain reset. I mean, I, I, if, for want of a better word, it, we think, hypothetically, it's like a reboot.
0: Now, working within 24 hours is really important for, say, postpartum depression, yeah. which, you know, hits people hard <laughs> right after birth. Uh, Or, you know, in the very late third trimester, uh, I guess, in some cases. So, like, a lot of these women get um, SSRIs because that's what we've got. And these typically take four to six weeks to kick in, even when they work. And they don't always work. (laughs) So that's, like, nowhere near soon enough. That's why this, I think that one reason why this is really important that it works fast, and that it you know and yeah, there's a fly in the ointment here. You got to take it for a sixty hour infusion. Got to be in the hospital. These are the, but you got to start somewhere. This is where the sickest patients they're they're there already. Right. They need help. Well, you think and this is the first thing that's ever ever shown to work for them? It's even more than that. And I, I often have this discussion
1: with people, which is the leading medical complication of pregnancy. PPD, leading cause of death after childbirth, suicide. If this were any other illness, any other illness, with that that kind of morbidity and mortality, the idea of a 60-hour infusion that gets two-thirds of 70% of people better, you wouldn't even have this discussion. You'd be chuckling, right? If this were cancer, if this were a seizure disorder, a gallstone, you know, it, it, you wouldn't even have the discussion. And what, one of my favorite we spend a lot of time talking to patients and, you know, and because it's also a multi-generational disease. Mm -hmm. It affects the family, help mother, the kid, but you talk to patients. It's really interesting. And my favorite comment that was said to me was anyone who thinks a woman doesn't want to get better quickly is a man. I mean, it it is, it, it, this, even the, the framing of that question, like that somehow it's inconvenient to get this incredible disease treated, that damaging disease quickly, Already assumes the, the stigma and the bias that we all that's associated and made mental health treatment problematic and stigmatized.
0: And by the way, you guys are working on an oral formulation, which yes. would enable people to take it in a more convenient form at home it, after they're sent home from the hospital. Well, I,
1: I think, as you said, you have to start somewhere. I mean, this is, I mean, what a great start for a company like us. No one's ever done it before. We did it differently, and. We get, you know, 60, you know, almost 70 percent of people either remit or respond. I mean, yeah, but we have an oral takes a little more time. But, you know, after 20 years, people still don't know the quite the right way to use SSRIs. So I think at some point you take a big first. This is a big first giant step. I don't want to I don't want to quote Neil Armstrong, but it is a big step.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so now, Jeff, uh, let's let's rewind here for a second and, and talk about who you are. Well, first of all, I, I got to say, I was reading your SEC filings before I came over here, and I saw that you are 65 years old. I can't believe it. Well. I, I guess this is where I get you to let your hair down and, and be be real, but uh, I would have guessed maybe 55. Uh, you've been around for a while. <laughs> well, I have been.
1: I have, I'm a very persistent person, and I, the people who know me well, this is a mission for me. But, yeah, I, I try to take care of myself. But thank you. I appreciate that. Okay. so now, I'm blushing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> now, so where does your story begin? Where were you born and raised? So I grew up in Queens. I was born in Queens at St. Um, at, at Joseph's Hospital is where I was born because my mother, although my parents were immigrants. My mother was an immigrant. My father had dropped out of high school. His parents were immigrants around the time of World War I. Um, they were sort of Orthodox Jews. And... Um, but I, I grew up conservative, but my mother wa- thought the best hospital in the area was St. Joseph's, because that's where the nuns were. She liked nuns. Don't even. I have no idea. So <laughs> I, I was born in St. Joseph's, and after I was born, they, around that time, they moved out from uh, Brooklyn out to the South Shore, a place called Valley Stream. And I know I, I mentioned, which is much more preferable to the North Shore if anyone I know is listening.
0: Well, I'm all for this respect among various creeds and all that. Um, so, what did your mom and dad do for a living?
1: My father was a dress buyer, and yeah, he was a dress buyer. He bought for a large chain of Southern stores called Eleanor Shops, and he was a big volume buyer. And this is back in the day. You had the, you know the manufacturers with the, the Jews and the Italians. Sorry if this is off color. Old school New York. Um, grew up. Used to go to the garment industry with them. We used to go to the cutting shops. Um, that's how I grew up. And then as I and I went you know public high school. And then after that, I uh, I went to, uh, most a lot of my high school didn't go to college at the time, so I I ended up going to Amherst and you know worked my way through, took loans and that kind of stuff.
0: Amherst. Amherst so yeah. this is like expensive private school. You went to public schools Went to for public high, school. High there, school.
1: Were, there were there weren't many of us at the time at Amherst. I mean, it was very you know mostly private school and over exit Bronx High School of Science. I say all the kids I used to beat up.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so were you uh, like a precocious student or or not really?
1: I was actually a good student, I, I mean, I, and I, I had very I had good grades, I had actually won a National English Award for poetry in high school, which I, I shouldn't have ever admitted now that I'm thinking about it, and uh, played tennis, I was a pretty good tennis player, and um, I was a doubles player, we, we were league champions in my senior year, and, uh, and then I, I, you know, but that didn't get me into college, I, I had really good grades, and, I, and no one in my, none of my family had ever gone to college, so it was a big deal. And so, you know, I, and back then you could get student loans, which I ultimately paid off. So I took loans and, you know, it was a long time ago and, and Amherst had room and board included. So it was a, it was a good deal. And I still have I still have lifelong friends from, from college.
0: But why Amherst for um, a kid coming from Queens?
1: Uh, because the smartest, I knew nothing about it. And um, the smartest person I, from our high school who I ever knew, um, he was about five years older than me, went to Amherst. And he was a smart guy. And, and so I said, it must be a good school. And at the time, my sister, who passed away later, her husband was working at Harvard. And, and he, was part, he was part of the uh, Est Movement. He, was a, he, was a, he did some sort of architectural psychology. And she thought, she just said, go to a small school. And my sister was very influential to me. She said, go to a small school. You're not, if you go to a place like Harvard, you're going to get not get professors. You're going to get some grad students. And uh, so that was very influential. Then I had a science advisor who said the same thing. And so basically... I ended up applying to Amherst, and I got in.
0: Do you have any idea what you wanted to study when you got there? <laughs> no, nah, I had
1: no idea. I wanted, I, I'd wanted to be an astronaut.
0: On, <laughs> all kidding aside,
1: because I was a big science fiction nut. I don't want to be an astronaut, or I, I never wanted to be a doctor. That was never in my mind at the time. And then, uh, But I had no idea at all. I, you know, up, higher education was simply, um, you know, for our generation, you know, it was just the way you made sure you could make a living. So it was never in my mind that I wouldn't go to college, or even grad school. I just, But I had no clue.
0: Uh huh. No, so how did how did you end up gravitating to science and then ultimately psychiatry with uh, well pre med and then med school?
1: Yeah, I did pre med. I was a good student, and and uh, so I, I got into then I got into Harvard at yeah. You know, I went. I, I didn't know what to do, and I, I and Amherst had a group of people who went to med school who didn't actually become doctors. So my 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 college advisor, student college advisor, was Dave Kessler, who as you know became commissioner. So he was my college advisor and. And I had some friends, like, and Amherst had other people who had gone, like, um, I think, had gone to go to start Cerner. So there was a culture at Amherst of people getting MDs, but not necessarily practicing. Back, this is a long time ago. And so I thought, okay. And I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I hate to say it. I thought, four more years of reading books and studying, that would be cool. <laughs> I hate to say it. And I knew if I learned how, to, if I became an MD, that I at least could make a living. And I, lo- I, I But I really like science. I love science. And I love the interface of science and society. That was always interesting to me, just as a, as a broad, general appeal. And then I, I didn't apply to that many med schools, and I got into Harvard. And of course, I got into Stanford, and, and that's where I wanted to go. Then I got into Harvard, and my mother and father, of course, being from New York and being who they were, said, "You know, you got to go." You know, it wasn't even an issue. They didn't think I should go to sunny California. <laughs> so off I went to Boston. Uh huh. And uh-huh. and and I actually um. Had one, I actually was going to be a surgeon, and I had I had taken one psychology course in college, where I had at Holyoke because Amherst was all male at the time, and so I went to Holyoke. I, my crowning achievement was teaching a pigeon to defecate on command, and that was a, a, And I realized psychology wasn't for me, and, uh, <laughs> and and so I avoided. I avoided psychology and psychiatry scrupulously. I just didn't like it. I was going to be a surgeon. I love. I love surgeon. I love the emergency room. Just loved it i just loved it and my second or third year harvard introduced a distribution requirement and after trying to get out of it i was forced to take psychiatry and i and i ended up going to mclean what do you mean by a distribution you, you, you had to like take some of these soft different types of medical medical um you had to take things that were social sciences social sciences or something that was basically not simple medicine so i, I ended up taking human sexuality at the bi and then I took uh, psychiatry at McLean. I had to give up a, a, a summer on I think it was Martha's Vineyard or, or to work in the ER, which is what I wanted to do. So I was doing it, and, all, and and a couple of things happened. One is I discovered I was I got put on the one biological unit at McLean at the time because it was still mostly everyone was in psychoanalysis, and I discovered that I was becoming I was reading a lot. And I was reading which I didn't normally do I mean I was a good student but I was really fascinated with the development of brain and and, and human behavior and neuro and, and it was really back then very incipient you know like neurochemistry and people were still looking at eye movements and cats and it was just really exciting and I just really became fascinated by it and I remember my you know so my father who wasn't well educated and, and I did it again and I really loved it and I had a couple of good mentors at the time who I was working up patients not psychoanalytically but like a doc like when your symptoms begin, what, you know, how, you know, what made them worse, what made them better. So one of the senior leaders said, well, you're working them up like a doctor. So well, isn't, aren't these diseases? So that, that led to my basically, ultimately going into psychiatry. But I, you know, remember I was going to be a surgeon. I loved doing it. And I was going to, and I, and my father basically, I, I didn't listen to him. He goes, I don't understand why you want to be a psychiatrist. They don't make any money. And you you know you could be a dress bar and do this for a living and make as more, make more money and I thought you know I'm going to do what I like and I, I this is probably the only time I didn't listen to them. And, so uh,
0: so being age sixty five, these are the years uh, late seventies, early eighties. This
1: is uh, so I graduated college in seventy five. Okay, and then med school. So med school was seventy five to seventy nine. So we were just ending Vietnam, and so I was you know I had made the determination. There were still people getting drafted when I was a freshman, senior, and uh, freshman and sophomore, and. We had four of us in my class, all of whom had the same birthday. We all got number 260 in the lottery, and we had about a week-long celebration because yeah. you know, that was when people were still leaving the, the country. Fortunate low number. It was a great number. My brother got my brother got drafted,
0: and, and he, he did. Huh. Okay. So uh, you're, you're doing the rounds like all medical students do, uh, exploring yeah. different disciplines, where you might end up uh, specializing, doing your residency. You pick psychology. Now, this is before... Prozac, with the there's SSRIs. Nothing. There's there's cognitive behavioral therapy, right? right? Um, <laughs> so, no, <not laughs> no, and, and meanwhile, like the molecular biology revolution is going on, you probably got lots of classmates excited by yep. that sort of Biochemistry. stuff. Chemistry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when I went to McLean,
1: they assigned me a great advisor, John Gunderson, to try to basically, who was like a brilliant psychoanalyst and a, one of the great, great things about borderline personality, I think, somewhat in an attempt to convert me, and. My my medical school advisors were, were horrified that I was going to psychiatry because no one was doing it back then. Um, neurology back then was pretty anatomical, and I, I and I, I remember being like doing a, a grant, doing a, a, a teaching rounds with someone very famous. Probably spent about four hours discussing whether a an infarct had gone up the medial you know pons by a half a centimeter, and all I could do was try to transport myself to a, a desert island while I was listening to this. And I realized, you know, I, I really like neurochemistry. but And the only way to do it was to do psychopharmacology. But back then, it was very rudimentary. Um, and and that, that actually began my interest in doing drug studies. I, I, I did, with my, my colleagues at the time, I was a resident, we did the first antidepressant studies of bulimia both with tricyclics and with MAOIs. We were doing S-adenosylmethionine injections, you know, intrathecal and, you know, spinal injections for depression. Um, we were doing a lot of that very, very early work. And so most, mostly through residency, and I published a fair bit, um, was doing early drug studies. Mm-hmm. And, and, that, and, and I just became more and more interested in just doing clinical observational work. And, and the other thing that became pretty apparent as, as I looked at the early research you know, the, the preclinical research is that the translation from the preclinical models into human benefit were, were, was extremely imperfect. So I thought, yeah, about, how do you know that a rat is depressed? Right, I would say dogs don't forget to write their moms, right? Mm-hmm. They, they don't forget to pay their taxes. And, and, it, and it really dawned on me the way to make a difference was to actually test, develop drugs and test them in and, and humans. Because it was pretty clear that depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, we did some of the early work with tegretol and Valproic acid. That these were polygenic complex disorders, and that these kinds of sort of very narrow observational bio molecular targeting approaches weren't going to work. I think it's still true today.
0: So, as a resident, and then eventually getting board certified, you decide uh, early that you were going to be like a physician scientist. Right. You you weren't just going to treat patients one on one and see them all day long and send off bills to Medicare or whoever. You know, I mean, you're you're um, you're you're doing both. Yeah, so I I actually always had patients,
1: and we Uh were allowed to, at McLean, start taking patients, Um, and then that's when the split began, and and it's still even to this day. Some people went to psychotherapy, and our group, we were mostly all, we all decided not to enter therapy because we all said we were happy, so, and so, but most of us did private practice, and so we all had private practices starting from about, I think, our second or third year of residency, then I was, became a chief resident, and I had a two-year, I was funded two years by the MacArthur Foundation to do sleep neurophysiology, so I did that. And then after that, I, you know, I was thinking you had to make a decision, like, do you want to get an RO, you know, a K, you want to do an RO1? I used to go participate with some of the stuff NIMH with Dave Kupfer was running Penn to, I was sort of like this, you know, like I would meet with the imaging people and, and talk about what we were doing. And the, and I kept it doing for a few years when I finally went in industry and then it was like scared straight. Like, look what happens to you if you don't get your grant awards, that kind of thing. <laughs> but. So and and so but I I treated patients then after I decided after my after my two year fellowship was done, I decided I wanted to learn how to some something happened. And I'm not sure what that moment was, but I realized first that I didn't want to just do one thing. I wasn't interested in like pursuing a thing to go after a K or an R01 and that kind of thing. That became clear to me. I like experimenting in variety. And then I also became interested in, in learning about the interface with business and society. So I spent about four years actually in the private sector running units. And after that, I just decided now I really wanted to go back and do something where I could do research. And it it dawned on me at some point there, and I don't remember when, that I really wanted to do something that made a difference. Some of it had to do with my my sister's death when I was in college. I wanted to make a difference in people's lives. I wanted to do something that is meaningful. And I realized to do that, you needed to have scale. Mm -hmm. You needed scale. And you needed to do something with other people teamwork and getting and, and and getting people involved and that meant to go to the industry and I joined I think in the early 90s and back then people were doing it it still wasn't very common and so I got I I had written a book actually the first book about Prozac and um, I had been on I'd been on CNN and TV doing this and I was being and it was had been reported a little bit that I was being followed by Scientologists. they used to come to my house with cards in the middle of the night on my door and um, I got recruited by a couple of companies by who, who had seen me on television, I still was at Harvard, had my big red ponytail and beard, you know, because I didn't know you then. <laughs> well, you, know, you didn't know me then. Very <laughs> few people would recognize me, and and I got recruited by Upjohn, and so they were they were busy involved in the halcyon at that point with halcyon, and that was very controversial, and we had Xanax and Xanax XR, which was one of my programs at the time, and. They recruited me to be a director of psychopharmacology, and that just started my career in the industry.
0: There was a wave of of oh. neuropsych in these years. Yeah, so we had we had that. We had pramipexol
1: as one of our drugs back then. We had some some alliances we killed, but we had Luvox, Xanax. We had Luvox, Xanax, um, Xanax XR, PramaPexol, which obviously got approved for Parkinson's, and then I got, kept on getting I got, then after that I got promoted, and so. Usually, I'd run large organizations, but always pretty much focused on, on drug development, NDA filing, SNDs.
0: So is it, now you're an industry guy. You're moving around some different companies, increasing levels of responsibility. Did you still keep your hand in patient care or like an affiliate faculty, kind of like see patients once in a while, or was that no? No, I, I was so
1: – What when I went into industry, and it, it was sort of very eye-opening for me. I, I loved doing research and clinical research. I, I would meet patients, talk to patients, but I stopped. I just said, I was so – enthused, there's another word for it, about doing drug development, working with a large group of people, being funded. I mean, you know, you all of a sudden you have a half a bit, you know, $500 million or whatever it was, you have, you know, 200 people. It, it, it was like, holy Toledo. I mean, you know, I used to worry about getting a lab assistant. I mean, this, this it was, you know, it, it was almost like it was just such a world, an eye-opening worldview. And of course, it was very different than it was today now. But the I just love. I just loved doing drug development and I loved, the other thing I loved was the controversy around psychotropics. I, I just loved digging into that. And I, I, when I was at Upjohn, they sent me to a lot of the regulatory authorities to argue about Halcyon and addiction and all the rebound things. And I was having letter wars with people in, in the Lancet and mean, filled up my CV, which was great. But it, it, was, it was just fascinating. And it was very instructive to me to learn the level of mythology, the pharmacomythology that people you know, claim about drug treatment versus what the facts were. But, you know, I always felt I was making an impact. And I realized, you know, this, I just love doing it. Love doing it.
0: Do you like listening to this podcast? You can show your support a number of ways, but the most meaningful one would be to purchase an annual subscription to Timmerman Report for $149 a year. When you subscribe to Timmerman Report, you get a steady stream of in-depth insights every week. Not only will you get a proper license to read my writing, but you can read articles from a talented cast of contributing writers, stacy Lawrence, Leora Schiff, Kyle, Kyle Sarakawa, and others. I edit these people, and I pay them in U.S. currency because their writing has value. If you work at a company that has more than one reader, you can purchase a group license to share this valuable content at a 10% discount. About 70 organizations from pharma companies to universities, have purchased these group licenses. They renew at about a 96% annual renewal rate. That is unheard of reader loyalty in this business. You want to know more about why and what you're missing? Ask me at luke at TimmermanReport.com. And have you heard about the Cancer Summit events I'm organizing this spring as a volunteer for the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center? Steve Har of Sono Biotechnology. Chad Robbins of Adaptive Biotechnologies, Charlotte Hubbard of Gates Foundation Venture Capital, Peter Thompson of Orbimed, and Raquel Bracken of Venrock are just a few of the big wheels coming out for this special community event. To register, go to TimmermanReport.com and click Events. So, Fast forward now, um, you, you've you worked your way around a number of like small companies, mid-sized, big companies, yeah. kind of all over the place. Uh, 2011, Sage Therapeutics gets founded by yeah. Third Rock Ventures. Uh, Kevin Starr, I know, was involved in the early days. Uh, you come in a couple years in. Uh, wh- how, how did that happen? So I was at
1: Shire at the time, and, and they first approached me, I think, in 2000, uh, 2012, and I turned them down. Um, and largely because I liked, I knew they had good preclinical science but apropos the way I approached these drug development issues didn't have any assets I didn't want to be involved with it and you know, they had great ideas and neurosteroids have been kicking around a long time and no one was really t- paying attention to them and we should be clear there are a number of these sort of areas where in mm-hmm. neuroscience where people knew things were going on in the brain but you couldn't drug them right? and neurosteroids were like that and they didn't really have any data they had a great idea you know and, the, and Steve Paul at that point was basically you know was the founder, but they didn't have molecules.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's like, it's like saying, you know, it, it's like, I, do you want to be a builder? Or you want to be an architect? I, I want to be a builder. So I turned them down. And
0: But I, Steve, but Steve Paul had this long history at Lilly, yeah. like trailblazing work on yeah. some of that earlier stuff we talked about. But, but I'm a, I'm a pragmatist. I am like a very, you know,
1: I always say I, I'm a shoemaker. You know, I got to make something. And, and so the science was elegant. There's not even a question about it, but you know, science alone is like one of, the, of drug development. I hate to say it. Mm-hmm. We can talk more about that, of course. And so I, it just wasn't of interest to me. And so I stayed at Shire and Shire went through its changes. And, and I realized at that point that was it wasn't the place I was interested in staying. And um, and they came back to me. And at that point, they had had some, some early work with asset development. We have a great medicinal chemistry group who are awesome. And so they started making molecules and they had, I think, one piece of patient data. But, you know, to me, you look, at, you look at data and one of the things I think you learn to do is to see if data is real or not. And data, you know, and the datum were, were real. One, one patient? One patient at the time. And I said, this is real. I said, this is an active molecule. That's all I cared.
0: What was it about it that it jumped that, out at you?
1: Um, it, uh, the EEG changes, somebody who was chronic, who had been a really severe SRSC um, and- I SRSC. A, a, a super refractory status epilepticus. It was a patient over at the Mass General, very elegant, very elegant, result. And it, it, at that point, I said, you know, this looks good. So both bio, uh, biological
0: and clinical
1: right. were aligned. Exactly. The biology and the clinical were aligned. And 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 that, and plus, I think, you know, Third Rock, I'll just let me give him a shout out, is a great venture backer for someone like me. They like thinking big. They're, they wanted to make something different that makes a difference for patients. And they really mean it. And that was important to me. I wasn't interested in going into a flip. I wasn't interested in trying. It, it was really... Something that I thought could embrace my passion because I, you know, I half of my career had been actually non CNS because I always run large organizations, but I, I just had a passion for brain science and I and and so when when Kevin came back and they had had some interesting indications I wasn't really interested in doing and you know someone said to me well you'll be CEO you can change all that so I did and um, it, it worked out really well but it, it was mostly the combination of the, the alignment of the science with uh, early clinical data. And I think a venture group, frankly, and a group, core group of people who started the company, who just were really open-minded and enthusiastic.
0: And GABA receptor modulation. Yeah. What was it about that? That I mean, new mechanisms. I mean, that, that you said this at the beginning. Yeah. But you know, you, you weren't interested in like another me too or a slightly better SSRI or something like that. Well,
1: you know, I, I, I had a lot of experience working with Xanax, not personally, but you know, working with it as a drug. It's a potent mechanism. I, although it's a very different mechanism synaptically than extrasynaptically. But I knew those drugs had measurable effects on human physiology. To me that was critical. If you give someone an antidepressant, like you said, you don't know if they're if it's gonna work or not. There's no predictor. People have tried, you know, short and long transporters, people have tried this kind of stuff, DSTs, TRH stimulation tests. Nothing has really been that reliable. GABA agents were reliable, the mechanisms are predictable. You can understand dosing. Um, their extreme pharmacology is also predictive. And I thought, so I like the mechanism. I like the notion and, and what are the liability? And I knew the liabilities of standards, benzos, you know, you get tachyphylaxis or tolerance. You get re- receptor up and down regulation at the synapse because that's what those receptors are designed to do. The thesis of modulating GABA, which I thought was a potent mechanism through an extrasynaptic mechanism that isn't modulatable, that is stable or tonic. That to me, I thought this is something we could work with. And, that, and that's really it, I mean, but it, it was my, my thinking about it even today is that you, the best way to go into CNS is through observational biology, not through molecular biology and theorization and animal models. I think you have to lead with human data whenever possible. And, and the GABA mock mechanism, and I was familiar with it, obviously, is one where you can do that, where you can lead with human data and use. And that's what we did. We did probe studies that could give us real quick kill go no go readouts. And that's a unique feature of that mechanism. And so I
0: liked it. Now, why is the synaptic and extrasynaptic action important? And not because I can imagine, you know, you can make a small molecule like often in other fields of biology to like turn something up, like agonize or turn it off, antagonize. Well, like these kind of blunt, you know, black, white kind of uh, (laughs) concepts don't work very well in multifactorial conditions like neuropsychiatry. So, what? How, how do you think about the problem differently here? Because
1: well, so I was always fascinated with SSRIs. So, theory: did, did you increase, you know, serotonin in, in the synapse, or are you downregulating postsynaptic receptors, or were you getting a rebound remodulation? We we still don't really know, right? And what was interesting to me, and I think what's important with this particular mechanism, the synaptic receptors are sort of the weather of the gab brain right they, they go up and down they respond to the nerve to nerve stimulation so by definition those receptors modulate they go up and down and obviously you, if you think about it they're the ones most likely to develop tolerance or tachyphylaxis the tonic re- the, the tonic receptors are outside the synapse to make it simple and they don't modulate so if you can affect those because they're regulatory receptors and, and, and they set the climate of them so there, you wouldn't expect them to be, to be that sensitive to dosing. You wouldn't expect to see things like rebound, withdrawal, and, and tachyphylaxis. So that's why I think that's a, that's a key difference. The other, the other discovery that the Sage Group made with the, the collaborators in Tufts was, and I think this is really important, not only did we not see tolerance in animal models, which you do with, say, the anxiety effect of a benzo, you, do, you, you see the sleep effect of a benzo, not only do you not see tolerance, you actually see upregulation With certain of these neurosteroids, upregulation of the the receptors, which may in fact account for the fact that we don't see tolerance, and may in theory, in theory, account for the fact that we may get a reset—that you're seeing some actual change in brain physiology that's enduring—and. You know, all we can say from the clinical data is that you're not seeing rebound. You don't have to see radical retreatment. So that suggests something physiological is happening as a result of these mechanisms. Now, not, all, not all neurosteroids do this. We think it's a big differentiator for our class of compounds. But again, this is the fun thing about doing something that no one's ever done before.
0: Well, and this is something you will have to prove out with longer term follow ups exactly. than we have right now. We don't we don't know this yet. I, no, that's the speculation. They're exactly right. I
1: mean, but we'll do this. The, what could be more fun? You know we listen so I know we have investors but what could be more fun and more rewarding than finding a new way to treat a disease that is you know accounts for more workplace morbidity than any other disease you know you think about it what an impact we can make if we can prove this out major depression
0: major depression yeah so that's 20 million people give or take uh, right. and uh, you know huge drag on productivity the economy uh, quality of life. Everything. Yeah, I mean, it, you think about it, it, it's such a, you know, I, it, I know people say this,
1: it is a privilege and we're fortunate, we, you know, and I always remind when I meet investors, I always remind them, we're doing this with you. This is, we're not doing this with the government. You're making, if we do something good for society, investors, you know, I, I, this is why I, I like believe in the system, investors make this happen along with the people at SAGE.
0: Well, they put a lot of money at risk right. in those early years when you had one data point <laughs> right. or you start somewhere. Third, we Third Rock with, was in there before yeah. one data point. Um, and, and then, you know, hopefully they get rewarded. And yeah. shareholders in SAGE certainly have. Um, okay, but so now you go through your clinical development plan, you run all these trials, you pick postpartum depression as your first indication, not major depression. Why postpartum? That was biology. That, that This is what I
1: talk about observational biology. What are the foibles or difficulties of depression? We've talked about it: diagnostic heterogeneity, etc. Why do we like why do we like postpartum first? There was a biological marker: the rapid decrease of, of allopregnatalone in the third tri- around, around childbirth. So we knew that existed. What that really meant, I don't think anyone knew, but that was a biological marker. You didn't need it for diagnosis, obviously. There's it's, it's basically sex-based; it's all women. And third, there's a secular biomarker: childbirth. And so we thought this was a, a, basically a, a pretty homogeneous population that we could target. Which is, of course, if you look at what's difficult about depression, as you mentioned earlier, the heterogeneity of depression is challenging. Postpartum, you know, onset you can control when when the patient was diagnosed, when it, you know, and and to make the diagnosis. So we thought this was an area that we thought there might be an acute change in GABA. You know, the sage, you know, the, the neuroscientists had already established that allopregnanolone is a GABA modulator, right, and. We also knew that benzos weren't terribly effective. We knew birth control pills weren't terribly effective. So we, we, we opined it was not hormonal. We opined that this was an acute change in gabatone. And that's it, it was really observational biology. And there are some now preclinical data that I think our data has helped support from the McGuire lab, it's gorgeous, gorgeous preclinical data with, with rat. I mean, she's done a, f- a marvelous job. And I think, so now you see this the synergies between animal behavior, which you can modulate and, and, and postpartum behavior. But the other thing that we were struck by, I think, beside the stereotypy of the onset and the ability to diagnose them, is the, the notion, this is a little bit maybe provocative, the, the concept that you could disrupt the maternal bond through some early childhood lesion, you know, in upbringing, I just thought made no sense. I mean, that is one of the most profound biological events in humanity the mother-infant bond. So it, I, I believe very strongly, and all of us did, there had to be some profound biological disturbance to interfere with that. It wasn't stigma, wasn't bad upbringing, wasn't weak in character. It was some profound biology that was disrupted. And so we thought also that since it's an acute onset, that there was a better chance of correcting it quickly, right? Like, as with any disease, get in early, easier to fix. So that was sort of the overall hypothesis. And if you think about how we look at GABA, that's sort of like a software GABA problem. And then we then we went to the chronic GABA apathies like tremor, Parkinson's. That's like a hardware uh, mm-hmm. GABA So that's how we thought about it. It was, it was very, I have to say, it was almost prosaic in the way we looked at it.
0: Okay. So you run your clinical trials, and we already covered this. Right. You know, you, you saw your effect within 24 hours, which is exactly what you need in something like postpartum. Um, you know, it's, it's enduring out to 30 days, I guess right. you measure. So that's um, showing that. It, it wasn't a fluke, but no, that, you know. that was a surprise. I, was, I should make it clear. We didn't know if we'd get it. At, I mean, we saw the 30-day effect
1: and that's, you know, if, if, if the third, if it wore off immediately, we would have said, you know, it's, it's a mechanism, but not a drug. But then we started seeing the people getting better and staying better. I mean, and all the factors of the ham, it wasn't just like sleep or anxiety. Everything remained stable. Then we said, well, this is a drug because we had the durability. So that was actually a discovery that, you know, the
0: sage scientists made and an observation. So you, you get through the randomized phase of the trials. You, you rush off to the FDA. FDA advisory committee gives you a 17 to 1 vote in favor, which, you know, doesn't happen every day with advisory committees. It's a pretty good sign. sign. Yeah, and it's the first in its class of GABA modulators for a, a condition there, where there is no uh, indicated therapy. People just write prescriptions off-label or, or give generics and hope exactly. for the best. Uh but <laughs> you um, you face some criticism around this. Uh, not everybody, you, you get uh, a New York Times op-ed piece after you get your, your good news of, of FDA approval, uh, which is written by a doula, um, good people that try to help women get through, um, get give them some help um, at a what is often a difficult time in their lives. Who really I think is looking a gift horse in the mouth. I mean, they somehow find a way to spin what is a a triumph for women's health, I would say, into some kind of bottomless pit of cynicism. Like you're just some greedy drug company, you know, gonna gonna, you know, engage in pharmacologic solutionism and disease mongering, and you're gonna make money hand over fist and <laughs> women ought to just, you know, jet off to the Bahamas or something. We could as a society we could do just as well. So you read this, and, and what do you say? I have,
1: so a couple of things. Firstly, you, you've characterized it very well. So, and I, I, you know, as a as a physician and a psychopharmacologist, someone who's done this literally for thirty years, I, I this is exactly the challenge and what's wrong with psychiatry in the country, in this country. It's the notion that a woman needs a box of chocolate, and that's all she needs. And, you know, look, with all due respect to the doulas, they began in the natural childbirth in 1969. I mean, you know, if you go back and read about this, Margaret Mead was talking about this, right, with same-sex um, companions for childbirth. It's great. It's psychosocial support. But that doesn't get people better. So, you know, my son's a type 1 diabetic. And he's been on a pump since he's age 8. And he's done great. If someone said to me, go on a, an oat diet because that's all you need and I'll be there to support you with nutritional counseling, you know what you would do and I know what you would do. But it's only in psychiatry. Only in psychiatry, where, where the question of whether you should get better quickly is even brought up as an issue. And and so I'll just, and it's very interesting to me, psychiatry is the only field of medicine where you ask, should I use a medication? It's the only field of medicine where there's a whole alternative industry that's opposing the use of medication. And, and so I'll, I'll just say this, if you, you know, I'm blocking on his name. It's um, If you look at the history of, psyche, of psychological thought, you can really trace it back to what was it, Aecklion of Croton, and Hippocrates in 500 BC, which is the four humors, right? Mm-hmm. The four humors, and, you know, and Hippocrates' concept was there's a chemical imbalance. He thought they were humors, right? Black vial, yellow vial, et cetera. Flash forward 2,000 years, we're still talking about humors, but now you have a neurologist in, in, in Vienna who's talking about id, ego, superego, and the subconscious, it's no different, for you. and and but and that has shaped still today's thinking that that's credible thinking around psychological disturbance. It's, it's actually,
0: if you think about it, it's crazy. Well, but now to be fair to the some of the critics, they'll say you know that, that we don't pay enough attention to the social determinants of health and some of these underlying root causes. We're not giving women enough support. That's all true. I agree with
1: half of this article. Yeah, but, but that's all true. But that's not the treatment. Everyone needs psychosocial support. If you have a broken leg, you're going to a physical therapist, but you're still going to the orthopedist. You blow out a knee. You're still going to get physical therapy. You're going to the orthopedist. You you could wait immobilized in bed with a caring person for six weeks and hope it mends. But no, that's the essence of medicine. The essence of medicine is to get people better as quickly as possible, get them back to their families as quickly as possible.
0: But this poses a real challenge for you as, as the trailblazer. Now, you're going to market this yourself. You don't have a partner. Right. You're trying to make inroads with an underdiagnosed condition. There's stigma around it. We estimate that maybe 10% of all the live births in the U.S. uh, are are to a mom who suffers from postpartum. You got a lot of work to do to to kind of destigmatize and uh, and and create channels of of people that uh, you know in the in the medical world who um, who believe that you have part of the solution here.
1: Oh, I uh, yes, there, this is a, people often talk about transformational therapies. This is transformational. This is a completely new way to think about a, a mood disorder.
0: Well, when people get a new drug, right. they start thinking about treating people differently. Exactly. It opens up a, the, the whole field of medicine. And, we and, saw this with retinal biology, well, macular well, degeneration. Well, we didn't bother so, to treat it until we got Lucentis. Think about HCV. Think mm-hmm. about HCV. It was a chronic disease 10
1: years ago, right? think about this. So this is a major, but look, this is what we're embracing. We are embracing this challenge. We have a great team of people at sage all of whom, i tell you, are mission-driven about this. If you walk around the company, people think about changing women's health. But it is a challenge because of this notion that it's okay to wait. It, you, it, you'll get better with time. You can wait six to eight weeks. You can, you know, you can get psychotherapy. Whereas I, I can, you know, I, not to be crude, if you had an acute prostatitis, that would go away in six weeks, but I'm telling you, you're going to go get yourself some Cipro. And, and I think that that's, the, 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 the treating this like the d- urgent life-threatening disease it is, is what we have to achieve. And you're right. I mean, getting a good treatment is going to get people much more in- interested in making the diagnosis. And the tragedy of this disease is so much of it goes underdiagnosed di- under because of the stigma. And this is where I, I, I actually think Having a medication that gets people better quickly, look, they still will need psychosocial support. You know, we don't know for sure, but that's part of it. But if you can get someone something better someone better quickly and you say you have a biological imbalance, you're better in two and a half days, that gets rid of stigma because it's not your fault. It's not a character flaw. It is an imbalance and you're getting better.
0: But you've tried, you know, th- this is tricky. Getting getting the the stigma, I mean, this has been around forever. Right. And, and you're the first people to come out there. You, you came out with some uh, advertising campaign a yeah. year ago where you had, like, women with a pacifier in their mouth. And it's, like, representing, like, the, the traditional kind of patronizing approach toward infantilizing women right. with this condition. Yeah. But, you know. A lot of people could look at that and kind of <laughs> misunderstand, like, what the hell is going
1: on there in that app? But it app? got people talking about it. And you know what? You think about this. We think that about 400, Like you say maybe one in nine, one in 10, whatever. Half of them aren't getting diagnosed. They're ashamed. They're embarrassed. They think they should tough it out. And you have a child. You have a spouse. You have a family. I mean, you think about this disease. The impact is broader than, like, then a hospital, you know, a community acquired pneumonia. Huge ripple effect on Huge families. Huge ripple effect. And and the idea, I mean, this is what I find disturbing. The idea that people think it's okay to wait. So yeah, we have a big road ahead of us. I think we're up to the task. And frankly, you know, that's why innovation exists. That's why a company like Sage exists. You know, we're, we we were embracing a little bit, maybe more than a little bit, that we have to be a leader in this area. We have to take a, take the lead in helping people reshape how they think about mood disorders. And Zulresso for PPD is really just the beginning of that, if you really get down to it. That will set the stage for, I think, the oral, the major depression program with Sage 217, because that's going to be the
0: same story. Well, that addresses a potentially much bigger market because, you know, how many of these women are really, like, let's say there's 400,000. If you take 10% of 4 million, it's 400,000. How many of them are actually going to be hospitalized for three or four days because of PPD? I mean, it's some small segment, I would assume, of the 400,000. I mean, we're getting into, like, Wall Street modeling of how yeah. big your actual market <laughs> is here, uh, you know, multiplied by your price of 34,000 per a course of therapy. So, you know, we've talked to women. Actually,
1: that's one of the great things about doing this for a living, and, and I get to talk to patients. And I, We didn't have trouble recruiting patients. That was never an issue. Women who are distressed, who are, distress, are acutely ill, really want to get better and you know as i say if any other medical condition they had a gallstone that you wouldn't be asking this question but it is part of this paradigm shift we have to achieve which is you have ppd you're not taking care of your kid you can go for two and a half days you come in a friday afternoon leave on sunday you know that it's it's not our experience with the women is absolutely opposite of what people seem to assume which is oh it's going to be hard to get people in it isn't. It's a standard IV. You can walk around. You can ambulate, and so
0: you can still see your baby. You can't. You can, see your you baby can still 20. nurse your baby.
1: You, you can nurse. I mean, that's the doctor. Remember, we've shown that it doesn't go into the. It doesn't go into the bre- through the breast milk, and it's a natural constituent, right? Allopregnanolone, and it's very low oral, oral bioavailability. But you can't recommend it. That's a decision with the doc.
0: Mm-hmm. Now your pricing. You come out at thirty-four thousand. Now, a guy like me, I'm not an average reader or li- listener, but I think, gee, you know, thirty-five thousand dollars. I'm used to writing about cancer drugs that cost one hundred fifty thousand, and you know, sometimes people complain a little bit, but generally not too much. Uh, I mean, we have an issue with drug pricing. We do. <laughs> but <clears throat> how did you arrive at the price
1: that you arrived at? So we, we've done a lot of work with that, and we began very early on proactively with payers and. Um, we also have done a lot of work with quality and DALI, you know, pharmacoeconomic analysis. And even conservatively, it easily meets most conventional criteria of cost, cost benefit. That's number one. Secondly, we went around to h- literally hundreds of payers and um, there's, there was very, almost virtually no p- pay, um, pushback. Um, they thought this was a reasonable price. Again, when you factor in rapid resolution of symptoms, Multi-generational impact, you know, imp- you know all the social services that are attended when you're waiting six to eight weeks for an SSRI to work, risk of suicide, all those things. We we just got very very positive feedback, you know. I, when we launch, well, we're very comfortable. We'll have a lot of re- a lot of the reimbursement will be set already. We've gotten extremely favorable and a lot of proactive incoming from payers about supplying this and and providing this as a company. I'll just say a couple of things. One is. You know, obviously, we all think our prices are reasonable, but we're not an orphan company. So everyone everyone in the biotech world, especially all young people like you, as opposed to like people like me, have, are thinking cancer, orphan. We're not that company. Too, you know, we can have premium pricing, but we don't need to have orphan pricing, nor will we. And so we, one of the things we're different is we have large markets we're attending to. If you think about even PPD, 400,000, that's bigger than most co- companies that are out there today. Once we get to MDD, or, you know, you're know, you talking 16 million new diagnoses a year, 25 million about in the country who are on chronic SSRIs. You're talking about a central tremor for 324, largest movement di- disorder diagnosis in the country. We're looking at large markets where there's significant medical need and no innovation. So When I think about this pricing, you know, we're committed to access. So we'll have payer, you know, as much as we can compliantly, we'll make it provided to women. We'll make sure they can get it if they can. The
0: co-pays aren't going to break them.
1: No, we're going to do all that. We, we, We are very determined to make this available to people.
0: And the price is going to have to be lower for a mass market like major depression. Right. Um, it can't be 34000 no, for for infusion-based medicine. That's, that's different. Well, it won't. Dif- it won't be. It won't be. It'll be lower. You'll compete against generic uh, SSRIs. Well, I mean, that's, that'll be the
1: marketing challenge for us. But if you think about, so if you want to move to an MDD, MDD if you think about the features of this mechanism, what does it do? It, it, it looks like it helps sleep. We've done that study. It improves sleep. Um, we don't see sexual side effects. You don't see cardiovascular side effects. You don't see weight gain, metabolic issues. So it, it's it's very, you know, the potential profile is 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 really acceptable. But you're right. You know, we will charge more than SSRIs for sure, but it's probably too soon to really get into that.
0: Do you need to do some longer-term studies to really buttress your case? Um, I mean, I'm sure you're doing that with major depression. Yes. But, like, say, PPD, do you need to follow these women over time and, like, show a lower suicide rate before you can, like, really make the case that, God darn it, this is worth every penny? Well, no, I actually don't think so. I think the features that we already have,
1: right, I think are so favorable with the rapid onset of, of symptoms within a day and the predictability of that course. And you know immediately within two days whether the drug works or not. That, that alone, that's what people are often overlook. You're on an SSRI, you know, I work with Lexapro, as you know, and you're waiting six to eight weeks, you get the side effects well before you get any beneficial effects. We know in two and a half days whether the course has worked. That alone is a substantial benefit. Um, right now for the drug, you know, we've seen the label, the only, you know, we didn't have an excess of suicidality, so that was a nice finding. But again, it's a very short acting drug. So I don't think we need to show more than what we've shown to, to really enhance or establish this value proposition of getting you know seventy percent of two thirds of women better or remitted or responding within two and a half days. That alone is unique, and we've you've seen the curves, and I, we've said informally, I, we don't have data we can put out there. We're very comfortable that that decay doesn't like go up like that after thirty days.
0: Do you need to think about this a little differently from a marketing perspective than say? a cancer drug developer who, you know, you come out with Opdivo and, you know, it's great to just sell that drug. You don't need to, like, support the whole surrounding infrastructure like Ronald McDonald houses for the kids who get Opdivo. You know, that that address some of the social determinants. Is there, like, something different to this terrain here in mental health where, you know, you kind of do need to work with the doulas and all these people who may not necessarily like you. They think you're the big evil drug company, right? Um is there like a special puzzle that you're, you need to fit in here? Well,
1: firstly, you know, there's an old saying, it's, it's a, uh, it's a Yiddish saying, which I wish I could remember, but it's basically you can never stop people from saying bad things about you. You can only make sure they're not true. <laughs> right. So they're not true, but you know, we are going to work, obviously, you know, there's some really well-established support mechanisms for people. Again, they're complementary versus what, what people like like the New York times article, which, you know, is, you know, I think offensive, which is you don't need drugs. Just, get a doula that you know, they're non-medical by definition that that's wrong and it would ne- that would never stand for any other field of medicine i'll just be clear but we view it as complementary right some people will need therapy and you can go to interpersonal ipt cbt there's some really wonderful ways and we're supporting some of that psychosocial support is critical but you think about it from our, as a physician if you're not profoundly depressed and you're not worried about, you, you, you don't want your baby anymore, but all of a sudden you feel better, now you can really benefit from psychosocial therapy. But it, they're combinations and complementary, not exclusive. And I think that's the critical piece. Just like my son sees a nutritionist, but that's not instead of his pump. It's complementary.
0: It's complementary. Do, do the pharma companies, is this one way you get out of this box where, I mean, the, the bottomless pit of cynicism that I referred to before, where, like, seriously, like something as good as, you know, the first of its kind treatment for postpartum depression gets spun into a negative. Well, you know, you can't, you know, I think, you
1: know, one of the things, and I, I say this, you know, the requirement to post on Twitter is, is, is an index finger. And the New York Times is, I think, famously does things about science, not always is the strongest science reporting organization. And as I said, and I believe this
0: they also perpetuated the myth that, you know, like some doctor from Harvard like invented oh. this thing. Like he gets the league quote and, like, oh, by the way, there's a company that did this in paragraph seven. Uh, but, you know, and, and they're just setting that price. Like they're just there to rake in the money. Like failing to understand that maybe there was some guy at Harvard that like moved the ball from the goal line to the two yard line. So. <laughs> and then, like, a company had to run that thing the whole length of the field to the end zone. Otherwise, it would not exist. Well, so let me, so giving you the plot, I mean,
1: you wrote a brilliant piece about this, and it's really something that frosts me all the time. You know, firstly, this field was languishing until we took it up, you know, and there are tons of ideas in the world. And so I always tell this, you know, saying that, firstly, 97% of drug development is the skill of getting the drug to market and doing the right clinical testing. Ideas exist in the ether. And the notion that, you know, like you said this well, but the idea that somehow a preclinical scientist is responsible for this product, it's like saying Jules Verne is responsible for the moon launch. It, it's aptly, it's an incomprehensible comment, but it displays the level of ignorance that people have about our industry. You know, We have like you know, hundreds, hundreds of people who are dedicated to doing the studies the right way. They're dedicated to, and they really believe in this. And the notion that somehow an idea is, is, is all you need, it's, it, it's crazy. It's like saying the pigment makers are responsible for the Mona Lisa. It's absolutely upside down, and the industry has gotten it wrong, and 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 society has gotten it wrong for years. But all we can, you know, you have to soldier on because we think we're doing the right thing.
0: Now, I'm pretty critical of the price gouging that occurs, and then there's gradations of it, what I like to call price ratcheting. I think some there are a lot of indefensible practices in this business. But (laughs) when somebody comes up with a bona fide invention, like like an innovation that helps people, and they charge what by most people's estimation, is a reasonable price for the kind of value that we're getting here. I mean, women getting back on their feet after giving right. birth, pretty damn valuable. Um, you know, if we're not going to reward that, then... How on earth are we ever going to get Sage two seventeen, the oral version, which is going to help a lot more people?
1: This is a fundamental issue we have and a misunderstanding. And I, you know, I, I I don't usually talk about politics, but one of my major concerns as a CEO in a company like Sage, which I think has become very visible, is the stifling of innovation. This kind of really wrongheaded criticism will, will result in the notion, you know, we did this, we didn't take federal money for this. This is private investors and our group of people at Sage who are entrepreneurs and really smart scientists. And, the, and it's risk capital. And if you disincentivize dis- that, you know, this isn't coming from Denmark. It's not coming from the EU. It's coming from this country. And,
0: and I, it'll benefit people in Denmark oh, eventually, will.
1: right? It, it will. But that's what frightens me, the fundamental lack of understanding of what it takes to get a, drug, a an innovative drug to market. Not one that's a little bit better, but something that's completely new. And the risk that that entailed, remember, we started, you know, when we started this company, you know, four years ago, when we went public, you know, right before, we were what, what $35 million when we started, right?
0: $16 a share. $16 what, $16 what is share it now? By,
1: by 100, $170. $170. Right? Not and, bad. And, oh, you know, you can't do that. At some point, it's no longer about the stock price. It's about your mission and what you want to change. And I and I think the system is great because the investors get rewarded this way. But, it, you know, going back to this general broader issue, I think- you know our industry leaders we have to do a better job communicating what it really takes and some of it's not you know it won't take like if you look at what the times just did you know that's an alternative health column by people who don't really understand anything about biology that had m- multiple factual errors in it and why that would come out in a mainstream paper represents the challenge we face as an industry
0: and yet millions and millions of people can read that circulated on social media right. and nod their heads dutifully and say yep there you go we're not doing enough to address the social determinants of health right. and these big greedy drug companies are just going to rake it in and you know uh, take advantage of these poor sad women
1: well again you just said Zil Russo is a truly groundbreaking novel in- invention that has opened up a doorway to a whole new mechanism for treating depression, a whole new way of thinking about depression. You know, we'll get there. Because as you said this earlier, once you have a drug that really works, it forces people to change the way they think. It forces them. Remember, people thought people with epilepsy were, you know, were possessed. Now we know better. So people's people's Opinion can be changed, and we have to, all we have to do is make sure we do the right thing by patients, do the right thing by the science. And I have a lot of faith it'll get there, but I do think we have an existential threat to our industry with this notion that, you know, that drug development comes from the government or a guy in a lab, and then that's it.
0: Opening up this new mechanism, we didn't even talk about NMDA, but, you know, Johnson & Johnson got the nasal spray as ketamine approved. Right. Uh, you know, we got two new mechanisms for depression right. after a, a, a 30-year dry spell. No, no. I think that's a pretty good scientific story, it's been, uh, and it yeah. opens up lots of possibilities for companies. Other than Sage, academic groups can now pick up and run with that. Uh, this right. is this is a good story. It's
1: a great story. Like, look, a scientist came up with the, you know the, the little mouse study about ketamine. All of a sudden, people are rethinking this. We did this graph about publications for neurosteroids over the last five years, and I can't you know I'm on a podcast, but you can watch this. Very few publications. All of a sudden, our data starts coming out, and the publications are now spiking. This human data is leading basic science here. And I think that's what's really critical that people also don't understand. But sometimes people ask us about the competition and my argument, because I, I always have to put my doctor hat on. This is the best thing for patients is more options. Give them more options. Let's get depression. It's one of the leading. It's, a, it's one of the biggest areas of medical need in our world. So, of course, we're, you know, what? there's tons of room for tons of innovation. God bless these companies. Right j&j god bless you got you know we're doing a great stuff there are other companies it's the best time i've seen in the last two you know 20 years
0: well i um as someone who's fortunate to have a voice and a show like this uh you know if i'm not using it on behalf of science or um in the people who can't re- really speak for themselves like many of these women with postpartum depression well then what the hell am i using my voice for and jeff um same to you and best of luck i appreciate what you're doing here um I don't normally get like this this uh, passionate or upset. Uh, I am upset at the reaction that um, that I think this and, and the hepatitis C cure got, it's just wrong. Um, we're in a bad place and we got some work to do to, to recalibrate uh, our our expectation, our social contract really, about what pharmaceuticals is, is all about, what it can do. So thank you for what you're doing, Jeff. Thanks for being on the long run. Thank you very much, thanks everybody. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.